Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Vinny Singh. Dr. Singh has been a general practitioner for over 17 years and completed his medical degree and studies in the UK. One thing that stood out during his training and professional career was that illness could have been delayed or even prevented entirely if people had made different lifestyle choices earlier in their life. This shifted the focus of Dr. Singh's approach towards a more proactive and preventative strategy for his patients. He opened his own integrative medical practice, New Wave Medical, in 2016, which combines conventional and natural approaches to help treat chronic, complex health issues and to optimise people's health. Good morning, uh, Dr. Singh. Now, um, would you like us to call you uh, Dr. Singh, Vinny, V-Dog, V-Man? What what are we going with? (laughs) I think it's my patient, Dr. Singh, but I think um, everybody knows me as Vinny, really. So, uh, Vinny's fine. Yeah, thank you. And you're joining us all the way from uh, the safety of your home in Barrel in the, um, I guess, southwest of Sydney, about, what, an hour and a half away, roughly? Yeah, yeah, it's an area called the Southern Highlands, yeah, about an hour and a half drive southwest. It's not, um, obviously a bit quieter than Sydney, and I moved down here last year because my wife had a, our, our first child and stuff, and we just moved down here for a sort of quieter lifestyle. So I've been down Very here nice. since then. And so, obviously, everyone's aware of the uh, current COVID crisis that's sort of um, it's everywhere that we go. Every time I open up my phone, there's notifications. Every time I open up my email, there's something about it. So it's impacting everyone's lives. And I guess the purpose of this podcast is not to focus too much on it, but I think it would be um, weird if we didn't at least cover it. So yeah. um, in, I guess in, in terms of how it's impacting you, both on a, a personal level, health, business, etc. you want to give us just a bit of a rundown of what's going on in your life at the moment and how it's impacting you? Yeah, so you know, in terms of where I was, I mean, we'll probably come to this in a minute, but my main uh, clinic spaces were in, you know, from, from a medical or from a professional point of view were in Sydney. And obviously, I, we, we moved to Barrel last year. So I was actually in the process of transitioning the, uh, the clinic down to Barrel slowly, but I was still consulting in, in Sydney and sort of commuting back and forth. And I think I, I was just about to set up an, uh, um, a clinic here in Barrel when um, all of this um, COVID-19 has hit, has hit the headlines and affected all of us. And I think I've had to sort of postpone the, the launch of the clinic down here in Barrel because of that. And, and also I've had to shift all of my consultations to uh, phone or video call while, while this is all going on uh, in, in the interest of patient safety, really. I think it, personally it's a double-edged sword because I actually I was commuting every day to Sydney from Barrel and I think I wasn't spending a lot of time with my family. So I think on the positive side, it's allowed me to kind of spend a lot more time with them but then, you know, we're, as a family, we're, we're quite outdoorsy people. We like going out. And I think, you know, we're, we're sort of just getting our heads around the, the, the isolation side of things. And I think, you know, I've been saying to a lot of my patients that it's not even the virus sometimes that worries me as much as the long-term effects of being indoors, that, you know, things that we're not used to. And, you know, when, when, um, when that continues, the longer that continues, I think we're going to see um, an interesting sort of situation in terms of how it affects people's mental health, their well-being and their stress levels. You know, and um, I think that's what, you know, has, we've, we've talked about as a family as well about how to manage that situation. Yeah, Vinny, um, how are you managing your consults through telehealth? I mean, what, what sort of calls are you getting? Is it all COVID or is it, you know, I've got a, you know, a sore toe? Or what, what, how are you managing no. that through a phone? Sure, that's... Um, I think to answer that, it, it, you know, we can go into this a bit later, but the kind of GP or medicine that I'm practicing now, I, I'm not really seeing kind of acute general practice anymore. Um, mm-hmm. I deal mainly with people with kind of chronic and complex health issues, so, so, and which I'll come on to probably later in the podcast. So my, my appointments yeah. are quite long. Um, so generally, I haven't really seen any of, uh, of, of those kind of cases in my clinic. What I have mm-hmm. seen is a lot of my existing patient base contacted me just to ask me advice about how they can boost their immune systems. Because as you can imagine, people with these chronic health issues, they're quite susceptible. And I've had a lot more of people inquiring about that kind of thing um, yeah. in the acute cases that you're talking about. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, even us transitioning to, you know, not talking to you in person, it's, 
it's strange. Like, you know, we can see you and we're talking to you, but it's not the same dynamic. Uh, and I've not met you before. I know David's met you before, but I haven't. So it's, it's a weird, uh, you know, particularly when you're like looking after someone's health, it must be quite difficult. No, it is, you know, and you know, one of the sort of uh, main principles of my practice is to re-establish the doctor-patient relationship, you know, um, yeah. therapeutic relationship, with the, and that involves, you know, the proximity you have with someone as well within within the clinic room, and you know, I know that sounds ridiculous to some people, but it is really important. I found it's really important, and it is, you know, in terms of medical legally, in terms of clinical examination, and it is it is a very it is very different, yeah, and, and, and it does affect. It is a different dynamic, you're correct. It does affect the interaction because I'm very old-fashioned and I like the idea of, you know, face-to-face, in-person, eye contact, that, that sound, you know, sound of someone's voice. And it's all important engaging, you know, someone's state of mind and their, you know, where they are in their, with their health. And, they, you know, when you start to switch to these kind of consults, you're right, that interaction is affected slightly. I mean, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess just to backtrack a little bit, Vinny, um, in terms of... Um, what you do and who you are. I mean, the area of medicine that you're moving into now, I guess, is you're breaking new ground. You're looking at things um, slightly differently. As Jake sort of said, he hasn't met you. I've actually been in, had a consult with you a few weeks ago. And the reason for me wanting to do that was to look at optimizing my health. I mean, I'm just about to turn 40 this year and, you know, I'm not interested in just surviving. I'm interested in living as healthy and productive life as I can, Um, looking to any, you know, hacks in terms of what I can do to, to improve my quality of life. And I guess that's an area of medicine that you've, you're moving towards or you're, you're in and we're sort of seeing the world in some respects starting to recognise this as, as, as potentially where we need to get to. So could you just maybe give us a brief outline of what an integrative GP is and a little bit about your training and how you've gotten to this point? Sure. Okay, so I guess I'll answer the second part of that question first. I mean, I, I qualified as a, uh, a doctor in England in uh, 2001, um, and I just did my standard junior training in the hospital, and then actually um, another three years of postgraduate uh, GP training, during which time I was, I was working as a GP. And then after that, I spent several years working in various different uh, GP environments, sometimes working out of hours in sort of rural areas in England. Uh, sometimes, uh, there were times where I was working for actual GP practices, and then also I had a bit of a private practice there as well. So lots of, uh, predominantly, though, I spent time in aged care invi- or areas where there are a lot of elderly people. And I saw a lot of, you know, the, the kind of misery involved in, in, in the sort of the end-of-life care and sort of diseases that people develop later in life during that time. When we kind of head towards, say, 2011. Sorry, I was going to ask, yeah. for people, I don't think we've had a GP on the show yet, David. I'm not sure. No, but no. How, how does a... Yeah, how does a GP train once you've come out of your junior doctor hospital work? I mean, you're presumably a jack of all trades uh, looking after anything that walks in your room. So can you just give people a flavor who don't really understand GP training, how you come to that point? Sure, of course. Um, well, I think if you go historically, if you go back to the 70s and 80s, in England anyway, you could actually qualify as a doctor and come out immediately and practice as a, as a general practitioner. Times have changed since then, and after you qualify, there's a mandatory year that you have to spend in hospital on, on, on just, just doing um, hospital ward work in the medical and surgical departments and just getting to know that side of things. And then after that, if you want to become a GP now in, in the UK, you have to go through um, like three, uh, as, as, as I, well, I did three extra years of what's called postgraduate GP training. So in that three years, I actually spent two more years in hospital in that three years. And you sort of rotate through different specialities like obstetrics and gynecology, you know, maybe psychiatry, pediatrics, emergency. So you kind of get a flavor of everything in a hospital environment to sort of equip you for when you go out into the community. And then the final year of that three years is spent as what's called a GP registrar or I guess a junior GP, usually under the supervision of more senior GPs in a practice. And then after that three years is finished, you, know, you go through a certification process and then you know, you're a kind of a fully fledged GP after that. There's actually a lot more involved in it maybe than many people are aware. You know, I think a lot of people maybe have the impression that you can just practice just straight after you qualify, but it's now not the case in most countries. Fair enough. Sorry, yeah. I inter- interrupted your train of thought. So carry on. <laughs> That's all right. No, no, it's, it's, it's good for people to know that. Um, so I think I was just, yeah, when I became a fully-fledged GP, I operated for several years, and then um, I started to have a lot of stress. I, 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 you know, the National Health Service over there is, is very overburdened, and I, I always felt myself getting burned out uh, and disillusioned and actually not wanting to go to work in the morning, which is very unusual for me because I was like a, work, a Trojan-like sort of workaholic. 
And then I actually also started to develop this um, sort of uh, what, what people might know as IBS or chronic sort of sort of gut issues or digestive symptoms. And um, it was interfering with my ability to work. So I consulted with the mainstream medical establishment over there, you know, GPs and then gastroenterologists. And um, despite their best efforts and sort of investigations and treatments, no one could really sort of solve the problem. And it's at that point that I, I actually um, decided to come to Australia to see whether there's anything different sort of professionally. And so I arrived here and then, you know, I worked in a practice here, like a normal sort of standard GP practice here down in Wollongong for a year. And I kind of realized that it, you know, even though the population size here is less in Australia, the Medicare system suffers from the same kind of like problems and pressures um, as the NHS in England. And, you know, I got just as disillusioned with it, I think, in so far as how I was dealing with people and the fact that I didn't feel I was really making an impact on their long-term health. Yeah. And also my, my, my IBS continued at that point. And so instead of going to see the mainstream doctor, um, doctors about it anymore, I actually consulted with a naturopath. I don't know what persuaded me to do that, but I thought I was just going to go outside the box and see someone else about this for a change. And even though they didn't actually manage to cure it completely, they did help me, and they started me thinking in different um, directions about how, how to approach people's health. And that's what started the process of me sort of pursuing different uh, um, further education and, and training and, and has led me to this point where I've kind of started this. Uh, I've now branched out from mainstream general practice and started my own clinic, which I guess um, is known more com most commonly as integrated general practice. So do you want to, I guess, explain the term integrative medicine? I mean, my wife's a naturopath. I've sort of been exposed to that world. She works with an integrative GP. But even I don't fully understand the pathways of how um, an integrative GP or, or those types of people formally call themselves an integrative GP. No, absolutely. I mean, I have to say that as of this time in Australia at the moment, I mean, integrative medicine is um, it's well established in the United States and there's formal sort of like um, medical bodies that, that recognize it. Um, I mean, unfortunately, that's not yet the case in Australia. And I think there's increasing discussion now about formalizing a pathway whereby people can sort of officially sort of class themselves as integrated practitioners. At the moment, it's just, I think, um, it's slightly variable. I think people can, it's not like a protected term, but people can actually classify themselves as integrative in terms of, you know, various different, there's no universal sort of standard yet if that answers the question. But to answer the main question about integrative medicine, I think it's probably best to sort of classify it into different areas. So I think I've touched on one earlier on. I mean, I think the most, one of the most important things is that it reestablishes the doctor-patient relationship. Okay, so it focuses on like a continuity of care between a doctor, a doctor and a patient, and not flitting between different practitioners. Mm -hmm. I think secondly, it considers like an entire person as well as and, and focuses main and on root causes of problems instead of just treatment of symptoms. And when I say consider the person as a whole, I mean, I'm talking about it considers their, the state of their emotional health, their, their, their digestive health, their hormonal health, their genetics, um, you know, and, and lots of different things in, in terms of where they are with their, you know, in terms of where, where they are with their health at the moment and how it's affecting their current health problems. And then in terms of how you approach treatment, it usually involves multi, the multidisciplinary team, uh, lots of different other allied health professionals, or maybe even professionals from sort of um, complementary um, uh, uh, disciplines as well. I think that the most important part of the end of it, which is often missed, is that a, a big part or increasingly bigger part of integrative care is the fact that it's personalized. I mm. even the, uh, the, the treatment protocols are sort of bespoke and they're tailored towards the, the, the patient themselves and their, their personal circumstances and, and exactly where they are at the moment. Because there's a lot of um, generic protocols out there that are applied as a blanket to, to entire populations of people. But as we know, we're all different genetically. And as, as well as that, we're all got different life circumstances. And what works for one person may not work, what may miserably fail for another person. So I think integrative medicine sort of takes account of that as well when you're trying to treat a, a patient's sort of short and long-term health issues. Yeah. And one of the things that um, I've sort of been talking about for a while um, with Jake and obviously one of our good friends, Fiona Tuck, who's a nutritionist that's come and spoken to us a lot, is the importance of what we put in our bodies and how that plays a role in our health because it seems to be something that's been forgotten about or not seen as important um, in terms of treatment of, as you said, chronic illnesses or something that starts off as a, as a minor issue that can then compound over, over time. So I believe you went back and, and self-educated or studied nutrition. Is, is that right? 
That, that's correct. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I've got a nutritional diploma from a university here in Australia, so I, I studied that for, uh, for a while, and I also um, certified with, a, with an, uh, what's called the Australasian Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. And that might be a bit misleading because it doesn't. It, I guess it, um, at, at its beginnings, the uh, Anti-Aging Medicine Academy was maybe focused more on aesthetics and cosmetics. But it's actually a lot, um, the training that you complete with with them now is actually much more nutritional and sort of involves the treatment of people with with um, sort of natural approaches, whether it be diet, um, herb, herbal medicine, or supplements and stress control, ra- rather than sort of any cosmetic aspect. Can I ask any? When you sort of speak to your colleagues who are still in the UK or they're not practicing integrative medicine here, what, what are your GP sort of friends saying to you? Do they think it's a you know, good thing? Is there a bit of skepticism about the whole thing? Like, how do you answer that? It's a very good question, uh, Jake. And like, um, unfortunately, I'd say the majority of people still look on it with a bit of skepticism in terms of my colleagues. And I think that's, it's a combination of factors. I think um, it's a, it's a maybe they haven't explored this area enough. And I think um, I think the main thing is that some some of the GPs have gone through a system at medical school um, and just it's kind of a fast track. They go straight through and then they, they learn they learn um, to see things in a certain way. Um, mm. and, and you can kind of get sort of like a channeled into a very kind of unidimensional approach, and, and you come out the other side, and you only have one set of tools in your toolbox. And you've never sort of used any others or been told about any others. So I think that that's one of the reasons why there's a bit of skepticism. I think um, it, there's also the, the, uh, like a, a different situation where I think uh, you, you get because there's a national health service over there, and because you know GPs work in practices where obviously the government uh, pays uh, the money to a practice to sort of distribute to its doctors. The doctors are kind of held in that paradigm, and they kind of rely on it. And if you kind of break free from that, it can kind of leave you sort of out on the limb, as it were, financially and in, and in terms of um, the scepticism that your colleagues may have of you. And you, you can kind of almost be like an outcast in, in your profession. And I, I think sometimes you know, the fact that you rely on the sort of government money to, 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 keep, to keep yourself going can create this fear of breaking free from it and, free, and, and fear of exploring um, the unknown, as it were, or, or what else is out there. So there's lots of drivers, you know, and, and obviously at these sort of times as well, the cost of living is going up, and, and I think there's a lot of um, maybe there's a lot of GPs out there that would consider it, but I think there's a lot of barriers to, to change at the moment, which are both economic, political, personal, and I, I think um, also as doctors have been trained with an evidence-based paradigm, where, where there's an increasing kind of slavish adherence to just what's um, quoted in evidence, and, and I think um, it's ever to ever change, or, to, or, or if GPs to become less sceptical. We're going to have to review how we look at evidence-based medicine. You know, not 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 to outlaw it or completely abolish it, but I think we have to start incorporating other principles as well as evidence-based medicine. And I think the yeah. evidence-based paradigm has strangled the way that GPs look at everything. You know, uh, if that will make sense. <laughs> yeah, it would seem to me as someone that's that's non-medical that's doing their best to navigate the world of self-education when it comes to this sort of thing. It seems to me that medicine as a whole typically is reactionary. You know, you only go and see a doctor when something's wrong, generally, or you go to check up because you don't want something to be wrong. But we're not looking at it in terms of proactively. What can we do to make sure we're not going to get sick or get sick, you know, not as chronically or live longer or live a better quality of lives? Why do you think it's been such a challenge to get people to look at it from trying to circumvent an issue before it becomes an issue? If you don't well, mind me are- just jumping. Uh, I was going to ask one more question sort of added to that. So, you know, us, Western Dr. Lemon, when I was at uni, we were taught that you don't do a test unless there's a good reason to do a test. So, for example, you don't just CT scan everyone hoping to try and find a cancer. You, you CT scan the people with symptoms, for example. Whereas I know that it's quite common practice, and I think um, David has done this, where you might do a screening blood test to see what comes up and then target that to try and improve your health from an integrative approach. Is that right, Vinny? Yeah, I think integrative medicine does involve, um, well, from my point of view, I I definitely utilize, over the years, I've utilized more testing to try and demonstrate where people are. I mean, I I, I totally get it, Jay, because when when I came through medical school, in in the UK especially, there's a very conservative approach. You know, don't do any investigation that's absolutely necessary. You know, um, 
because you know it's, it's not you know it doesn't change the outcome. But I think that's um, that that's only when you look at it from like you know you're only going to treat someone when you have a disease, mm. uh, and, and also that the and I, I believe anyway that 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 kind of mentality comes from an, um, you know um, the fact that the, the, the the decision about what the right investigations to do has been governed by finance and money rather than whether it's right or not for that particular person. Now, yeah. Sometimes I had patients in the UK where, you know, unless they had that bit of information on paper and they had the test, then they walked away completely reassured, whereas some people were happy with just your clinical findings. And I think it's, it's that lack of flexibility and, and, and the adherence to just one protocol that, that it's where it falls down, if that answers the question, you see. So I think... I think um, I've changed my mind over time, and I, I, I think that I found more, that, that sometimes you can you can try and go through your usual history and examination uh, and your sort of normal clinical process, and you can be completely wrong about something, and you can miss something. Um, so, so over the years, I've changed my mind, and I think I'm less conservative. I think I test more now, and obviously, when I say test, there's different forms of testing. There's t- testing that's available widely within mainstream medicine, and then there's testing. But, you know, additional stuff now that's available, forms of testing, or um, that, that are a bit, going into a bit more detail, perhaps not as recognised in, in Australia yet. But they they open the door up to so much more information that helps you sometimes identify processes that are happening before a patient even perceives that they're happening. And this brings me on to kind of David's point that the difficulty in persuading people to be proactive lies in the fact that people assume that if nothing has happened to them, like if they don't have a symptom then nothing is wrong with them at all. But I'm, I'm trying to retrain people into thinking that, into, into kind of a, I, I show them like a journey to disease where you start off with optimal health. And then there's a big sort of part of the road that remains sort of, you can remain without symptoms before you actually hit symptoms themselves. And that, it, it doesn't mean that, um, you know, just because someone is at the beginning of the road at optimal health, and, or, or if they're just before the, the part where you start to develop symptoms, it doesn't mean that those two people are in the same state of health. I mean, they, um, and what I'm saying is these things can be building up in people over a period of time and they don't realize that they are. And therefore, they make the subjective, uh, um, have a subjective view that they are healthy simply because they're not feeling anything. Or I, mm. I found in my practice now that if you go into things a bit deeper at that time where they, where they feel that they're healthy, you can actually demonstrate that they're in fact not as healthy as they think that they, they, they thought they were. And I'm not trying to um, sort of criticise people for that. There's, you know, that's just how we've been trained. We've been trained to be very reactive, like David says, like, you know, let something go wrong first, go to the doctor, there's going to be an instant fix, I'll be all fixed, and I go right back to the beginning again, nothing wrong, and I can just wait again uh, until the next time it happens. And I'm afraid that's like a deep programming that we've all had over time. And I guess part of my job, I feel, is to try and, a big part of it is to try and re-educate people to think differently about that. And to think, like, what can I do to stop it from happening again once it's happened? Or, 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 if, or even to identify it before it's even happened, if that makes sense. We, yeah. Well, we, we see this line of, line of thinking across all areas of life, not just medicine. You know, it might be science. It might be whatever. Um, people get emotionally wedded to their ideas to the point where they can't re-question it. And that's one of the things I found impressive about you, even you just mentioned it then, is changing your mind over time on you know, in, in the presence of new evidence, you're willing to change your mind and look at things differently rather than this dogma of repeating the same process over and over again because that's just the way things have always been done. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, unfortunately as well, you know, people, um, because, because, again, I'll come back to this, the, the, the financial aspects of this do play a part because if you have a problem that develops and then the the, the cost of fixing that essentially in a, in, a, in a free at the point of entry health service is nothing, that then... Sometimes when, when, when things get better again, there's no incentive, do you see what I mean, to actually change what you're doing. And I know that's very controversial, but, um, you know, that's what I've found. I was going to sort of translate this into a current problem. So I think a lot of people, they want a definitive answer. So do I have COVID-19 or do, do I not have COVID-19? I've had a test this week and thank God I'm negative. Whereas I think what you're saying, Vinny, like if you've got a longer term problem, like your arteries are flaring up with cholesterol, you're only going to get a symptom when you have a heart attack. Yeah. And yet someone like yourself is going to, you know, try and treat that 20, 30 years before you get the symptom by managing yeah. well, a whole bunch of things. And yet the patient doesn't see that um, underlying exactly. building up problem. 
No, you're exactly correct. What, what I, and, and that's one of my big challenges, which I, which I relish in a way. But I, I'm trying to push a rock up a hill. I'm trying to convince someone that something will happen that they have they can't feel or they can't see yet. And um, mm. I think I, I try I, the, the way that I try to counteract that is by going, you know, maybe taking them into the future and to the, trying to let them know the benefit of my experiences, especially with elderly care, and, and letting them know that a lot of these things that happen later in life, you know, can be can be avoided. Like maybe not necessarily avoided all the time, but the process can be arrested by many years if they just make the right decisions when they're um, younger. But again, I think even nature is such that if there's no incentive to, to change um, and you can't, you can't see something, it's very hard for them to do so. And I think um, one way in which you can kind of hold people accountable is, is um, imparting on them personal responsibility. And that, that, that's in terms of them actually just developing personal responsibility, but then, having maybe financial, a bit more financial accountability for what goes on as well. I mean, that's a big point of controversy, I know. I know this is, well, this is going to be controversial as well, but I guess the stereotype of someone who will see an integrative doctor will be someone quite well off, maybe a little bit um, more open-minded than the rest. They've got the means to kind of do this stuff, whereas for your, you know, poorer person, they'll probably never access someone like yourself just because, it tends to be a private service. Is that, would you agree with that? Or, but by and large, at the moment, unfortunately, that is the case. Interestingly, I, I, I get two I kind of two different patient groups. I mean, one um, one group which is very similar to the one you just described. People who are obviously from a more affluent background and they have the money to spend on it. And then there's another. Actually, then there's another group of like just um, like probably uh, people who go to the gym and like they're very very passionate about it and they'll do anything they want to do everything and every and they don't need any convincing. And then there's That's a group David. of very yeah <laughs> exactly yes yeah, like, like David. And then then there's a group of um, very chronically sick people who have been around the, the block. They've seen every doctor imaginable in mainstream medicine. No one can help them, and yet their you know, their blood test results are normal in inverted commas. Their tests are normal, yet they still feel really sick. And, and sometimes, uh, interestingly, sometimes they, they do have money and sometimes those people are actually not very affluent and they, they choose to sort of save as much as they can to embark on a more longer term journey within the realms of their own finances to find out the reason. And they're that desperate and they're that in, in need of an answer to their problem that, that they, yeah. they will spend the time and eventually the money. Well, we've all heard these examples of people saying, oh, you know, Jeff, he was really fit. He ran every day and then he just dropped out of a heart attack at 50. Well, people that have lived these whole lives and all of a sudden they get some weird and wonderful disease. And it's like, well, how do you know this hasn't been building up over time? You haven't looked. It's sort of like, it's sort of like that old adage, you don't look, it's not going to happen. And then it's always a surprise when it does. It's like, well, maybe if you'd started looking at this stuff a bit deeply, you know, a long time ago, maybe you could have avoided these issues. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, and, um, I mean, you could embark you know, in order to counteract that. I mean, you could embark on a life, on, on like, like like Jake was saying, on screening everyone for everything. But I think you know, even within my my realms, and even with, uh, definitely within the government-funded healthcare realms, that's never going to be an option. So you've just got to um, again the, the the ability to what you're suggesting, obviously, is what I try and sort of achieve with my patients, and it's a really I think it's a really good idea within you know, but it does depend sometimes on what people um, can afford to do at this time. Yeah. And I think, um, just touching on what Jake was saying again, I, th I think um, we have to have a deeper examination of the reasons why this type of healthcare is, remains in the private sector and still so expensive. Uh, and, um, you know, it's a long discussion. And I think um, government-funded healthcare in many sort of Western civilizations have, have sort of, I guess, monopolized um, healthcare for, for quite a long time. And, like, you, you wonder whether, whether you know, if there was a more sort of free market approach alongside a good sort of like scale down national service, whether that would be a better kind of model than just trying to lump everything into, the, into a nationalized uh, system. And then maybe we'd have a bit more money. It wouldn't be ideal, but it would be a bit better than what we've got at the moment for the purposes that you're describing, screening. So let's assume that um, I'm coming to you for a consult for the first time, just for people that are listening that are going, great, I understand what integrative GP medicine is, but what does that actually mean to me from a patient? Like, could you just walk us through the process? Like, what are you looking for? How, how does this actually work if someone's listening and wants to understand what's involved? Yeah. Sure, yeah. So uh, my usual sort of um, approach, and my, I guess my model that I employ is that I, 
the first two appointments that I see people, they're usually long appointments. So I'll see people for 90 minutes the first time. And that will involve me sitting down with them and going through basically their entire health history from beginning to end. And I'm covering, you know, um, obviously their past medical history, you know, but also looking at other things. Specifically, I'll ask uh, screening questions about their digestive health, about their sleep, about their stress levels, and other screening questions specific to other sort of like body systems in the body. Um, I'll ask them about you know, their occupations, like just basically everything about them that they're willing to sort of share with me to get an overall view of their current sort of personal, mental state, physical health, uh, any medication, supplements, anything that they're taking. And then follow, following and, and family history as well, because it's important to know about you know, genetics and, and, and what could be sort of passed on. And then I'll sort of embark on any kind of clinical examination that I feel is necessary, uh, given what they've said. Billy, can I ask, and how much of, yeah. uh, of your sort of traditional GP training are you using alongside the integrative path like is like yeah how would you explain that I still think I'm you know don't get me I don't want to listen to think that I've gone out on a limb and doing something quite different I still utilize many of the things that I have been trained to to do as a standard GP all of the standard sort of testing that I've got available to me and like of course um, at the moment like if someone comes in not many people will come to see me just because they have an ear infection or a tonsillitis or a urinary tract infection or some of the main things so I don't, I don't tend to sort of see and treat a lot of those things as acute problems. Uh, only if more, more so now those things, if they come up as side issues as people that I'm already seeing, I'll still mm. utilize those skills to their thoughts. So I'm still really utilizing all of the training that I had, just maybe not, as, not seeing and treating as many acute cases as usual. And obviously a big part of my uh, practice, which I'm, it's very important to outline, is that I, I'm, I'm all for incorporating mainstream approaches from the beginning as well, where they're relevant, to rule out anything that's of um, a more serious nature that needs to be dealt with by mainstream medicine before you go further. So if you, um, you know, this is too poor a question, but someone's got high blood pressure, but they don't have any other sort of surrounding symptoms, do those sort of people come and see you or is it more the people with gut health issues uh, or, or those sort of things? I see a bro- like a broad range. Of, like, funnily enough, the case that you just described would be. Like, I have seen a few people like that, uh, for example. But um, I, I could probably like, group the patients I see into sort of three or four main areas. I mean, again, you've got the health optimizer, as a small group. Then it's a, a big section would be digestive, like chronic IBS and digestive health issues, um, chronic fatigue, mm. um, and then I think the other big group is probably uh, women's health who have like hormonal problems, whether it be like PCOS or uh, and those kind of things, or auto, autoimmune disease is another big one. A lot of people with autoimmune disease haven't really got anywhere with mainstream approaches, and I, I try and sort of take one. So that's kind of the, bro- the broad categories of people that I'd see. But you also get these odd, very sort of, I guess you know, the, when you're training as well, you know the kind of patients who have these very chronic, unexplainable symptoms all over the body, and they've been to see everybody, and no one can kind of get on top of it. So I kind of try and start from the beginning with them again and see where sometimes it can be a case where a couple of things maybe not have been checked for. So, Yeah. Now, to relate this to injectables, even though it's got nothing to do with it, because that's what I do, <laughs> a small proportion of our patients, uh, you know, are probably inappropriately coming to see us. They've got body dysmorphia or they're just jumping around clinics because they're not happy and injectables are not going to be the answer. What um, sort of proportion of people come to you who... They're kind of malingerers. They're sort of, you know, you're never going to make them well or they've got such bizarre symptoms that it doesn't make sense. Do you see those sorts of people? Yes, yes, I do. Again, it's a good question. I think, oddly though, I think it's actually only a small percentage of people that I see where, where I feel that that might be the case. And obviously they need sort of psychologists and a lot of help and, and in that regard. But they do exist. And I think, you know, Usually they've gone to see lots of different integrated practitioners and I'll see, have a look at a lot of their tests and stuff and you can just, you know, spending the time with them and listening to their story and what, how they're talking and their mood and everything, you can kind of tell that they're, sometimes they've got deep-seated psychological issues that no mm. one can improve but than the person themselves. And, and I try my best to sort of go there with them uh, if I feel that's the case. But um, you, you, I'd say only 5 to 10%. Okay. So to put, like, I guess, an example of what your consultation may look like, because I'm recalling the consultation that I had with you, we discussed things like gluten. 
Now, I know we use the word gluten in everyone in the eastern suburbs who doesn't eat gluten, who <laughs> thinks they're gluten intolerant. So that's a bit of a, a, bit of a sort of a laughable point. Um, but you were talking to me about how, and I found this really, really interesting, so just for people listening in terms of how this sort of stuff works, is we were discussing perhaps someone that may have a mild intolerance to gluten. And you said to me there's like a spectrum where you've got someone that is absolutely fine to have it, never has an issue, all the way up to, say, anaphylaxis, where people are going to potentially die yeah. in there. You know, the, the airway's going to close up, for example. And then in the middle, you've got this spectrum or a continuum where you've got, like, different levels of um, effect or um, uh, allergy to it, if you want to call it, for lack of a better term. So you might be sitting really sort of low on the intolerance level, but it's compounding over time, and you're linking that to, say, gut permeability and, and how these things all sort of link up, where you might, not, you might just, say, experience a little bit of bloating and maybe a little bit of discomfort, but nothing that would sort of uh, make you panic to rush out and go and see a doctor. You might think, I ate something funny or whatever, yeah. And we're talking about how these things sort of uh, accumulate over time to become a much, much larger issue. I mean, is that an example you can maybe sort of expand on a little bit just to give people a, a real-life an idea of how this works? Yeah, yeah sure. So right. it might take a little bit of time, this one, so just bear with me. I mean, I guess the, uh, the starting point would be someone who would say that they had been diagnosed with IBS, all right? So ir- irritable bowel syndrome, which really is just a descriptive term. It's not a diagnosis, and they'll usually present with these kind of... Um, this umbrella of symptoms, whether it be pain in the stomach, bloating, flatulence, um, diarrhea, constipation, or just all of those or one of those or two of those. And um, the, the problem is that people often assume that it's ju- it, it might just be a food allergy or intolerance or food-related, but there can be two or three or four different reasons why they're reacting to that food. So I, I, I like to sort of look at it in terms of that there are different reasons why people react to food. So one of those would be like an intolerance, like you said, like you were talking about, where your immune system or the antibodies that you make are making an antibody towards uh, a food. Now, that, that can be any food. It, it doesn't have to be the common ones like gluten or dairy or, or, or egg or whatever. It could be anything. And I think that people don't realize just how, how broad the sort of like a, a spectrum of allergens that you can develop can be. Now, just uh, before I go back to that, that part of it, the other reasons why you can react to food are because of the action of bacteria in your gut on the food. So, for example, if you have an overgrowth or like a, of bacteria in parts of your digestive system, they can ferment fermentable foods and, and produce the same kind of IBS symptoms. And that can happen in the large bowel or the small bowel. And then you've also got the effect of your, I guess, um, to simplify it, digestive juices, as it were, in terms of the, the liquids in your body that you use to digest food. So, for example, stomach acid is used to digest food. Bile from the liver is used to digest food. And then enzymes in your pancreas are also used to digest food. So if you become deficient or low in any of those kind of uh, liquids, as it were, that are used to digest your food, that can also cause similar reactions to food. So the problem is when people have IBS, you often have, people often will have a combination of one or two or all of those things happening simultaneously. And if you just concentrate on food allergies, or in top, the, just the immune response to the food, you can kind of miss the other things and you can just roll around with IBS for years. So more, more specifically in terms of the, the gluten question or, or food intolerance, I think about 70% of people will have some kind of reaction to gluten, whether they perceive that they do or not. And I guess um, this sort of pertains more to what, I guess colloquially is known as leaky gut. I mean, I don't, I don't like that term. I, 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 I prefer the term sort of scientifically increased intestinal permeability, which means that... Um, I guess it's, you know, there's a porous, I guess that's a porous nature of the gut that develops because of, um, of, of food intolerances and some of the other things that I just mentioned. And it allows um, substance, the foods or, or proteins or other things or toxins to enter into the body uh, via the gut uh, when they shouldn't. And that's when your immune system responds to them. Can I ask you, so yeah. I'm going to put on my Western doctor's hat again and be controversial. Yes. Because all my background was colorectal surgery. So, you know, we saw yeah. loads of people for endoscopies for things like query IBS. And I don't know how it works in Australia, but in the UK, you have to have a colonoscopy um, histology from your gut to prove that you don't have anything weird going on before you can be labeled with the diagnosis IBS. Is that the same here in Australia? No, I, from what I gather, people, people that have seen me have been lab- just labeled with that without sufficient investigation. Right. Now, in the UK, it was my understanding that you had to have, it was a diagnosis or, or, of exclusion or a, disc, or a descriptive term when you had excluded other pathologies. But I, I don't find that's a uniform sort of process over here. 
or not yeah, as much. Okay. And the people that have come to me who haven't who haven't had that, and I have to send them for those things, so those investigations before I've gone further with them. Yeah. Google Doctor. Um, we have got iPhones. Everyone's got an iPhone, or most people have iPhones, and um, people quite often. Um, obviously, we feel very empowered as a as a uh, as a society to. Um, do our own research, and people in, invariably will get a symptom and then hop onto Google and self-diagnose and, you know, panic or treat themselves uh, incorrectly. Um, how does that impact you in, in your practice, and what are your thoughts on the, the rise of the uh, the Google doctor? Well, I think, you know, we're in, we're in a technological age and age of information. I think you have to embrace that. I think if you try and, you know, the people are going to go, go out there and look at all kinds of pieces of information. And I think... I try and look at it in terms of the fact that the role of a GP has changed slightly uh, from that of someone who just sort of sits there and sort of didactically teaches someone what to tell someone what to do, what, what's causing something. And the role has changed to sort of more of a facilitator now to, to try and sort of um, sift and sort through the information that someone already knows and put it into context and, and make it um, relevant for them rather than kind of um, just resist, uh, just, just sort of dismiss that sort of like a behavior from a patient outright. And I think I've tried, you know, I think people will find if they try and dismiss that, that, that uh, Dr. Google and, and the, the people looking things up, they'll, they'll find themselves in a bit of trouble. I think you have to kind of embrace it and, and, and work with it. And that's, what I, that's how I've tried to deal with it. I mean, it, does, it is frustrating. And I think as long as, as, long as you remain patient-focused but not, not, not entirely patient-centered, that's, that's the key. You've got to sort of like um, have a boundary between, okay, you found out this bit of information, but, but you know, I, I've, I, you know, I've got to put it into context as well. And again, people can look at the trouble with Dr. Google is there's a lot of generic information out there, which again, you can't um, apply as a blanket to everybody. And um, you, know, you both probably know that if, if someone presents with a certain uh, group of symptom or group of symptoms, the cause may be completely different from one person to another and therefore the approach will be. So the notion that you can go to Dr. Google and access this generic protocol to treat yourself with a symptom is already illogical and already wrong because you're going to have to um, adapt it. And part of that is seeing where you are in the first place in terms of collecting the data, seeing where you are, then putting, then gripping the information that you've got from Google and putting it all together to sort of, again, to, to make it a bespoke protocol for someone rather than just following the protocol itself. So I see um, it as a positive thing and a negative thing. I didn't kind of get to expand on my question originally. So we spoke yeah. about, you know, things like endoscopies. But when, you know, naturopaths or integrative doctors use terms like leaky gut or permeable gut or um, lack of digestive enzymes, I think a lot of doctors, including myself, go, okay, cool. That may or may not be true, but how do you test that? Or is it just based on the symptoms and the history and the blood tests? I think, it's, I think with those... Um, with those kind of things, like say for example with digestive enzymes, I mean you can check things on um, on blood tests like pancreatic lipase and pancreatic amylase, and you can check those. And you, sometimes you've got to look for clues uh, as well, maybe in the uh, in the blood test for you know, the stomach acid, for example. People might come with a with a blood profile that shows quite a low level of fats or triglycerides and a low level of protein, and they're they're complaining about indigestion. You can kind of get a feel that the more of those people you see, that maybe they're not digesting and absorbing those things properly. So in those situations, it's a combination of what they're presenting with the test results. Yeah, it's a combination of everything, I think. And, and observational analysis with people as I've gone along, I think that's where, what I was trying to say at the beginning, I'm trying to combine what's there with my observational analysis and put it, put it all together rather than just take, you know, it doesn't say it on the test, therefore it does not exist. I think that's dangerous as well. Yeah, and I think this is where, um, you know, certainly my training sort of fits a dead end because I've seen blood tests done by integrative doctors and I look at the, the whole screening profile and I'm like, I don't know what any of this is. I've never even heard of these tests before. <laughs> so, you know, when my wife would show me these blood tests, I'd be like, I really, I don't know. I genuinely don't know. And then you get into areas like an integrative doctor might say, look, your vitamin B level is actually pretty low, but in Western medicine, it's deemed as within the normal spectrum. And so it gets like really clouded if you don't have that biochemical training to really understand even how to interpret it, let alone order the test. No, I, I agree. And I think also the problem here is that, um, you know, you've, you've touched on a really important example, for example, like normal ranges. So say that I check someone's level of their zinc or something in their body, and there's a lower range X and an upper range Y. Now, 
uh, say a doctor who's just done normal medical training might deem someone who's just above X to be in the same position as someone who's just below Y. But I'm not sure I, I entirely concur with that anymore, especially because when they did, when they, a lot of the studies that were done to devise that normal range might have been studying people who were zinc deficient. And, and that, that yeah. range is then devised on people who were, who are perhaps deficient, and, and maybe for someone who wants to be optimally healthy or, or have levels of zinc that are sufficient to sort of achieve optimal health, might have to be at the higher end of that range. You know, and I, I can't absolutely prove that. I think that's somewhere that's um, something that I've worked out through trial and error myself, where I've seen people, you know, I've supplemented people, and they they with the blood test they've achieved a level at the top end of the range, and, and I've not done anything else with them, and they, they are feeling a lot better now. Whether, whether if, I, if I see 100 people in a row where that works, I'm not sure I always need to have a, a, a randomized control study to, to, to prove that. And, and, you know, within the realms of safety, that they haven't had anything harmful happen to them. And this is controversial, I guess. That, that's, what I'm, that's the sort of thinking I'm asking people to... Um, you know, just because there's no evidence for something, there's two things that can happen. It means they've done, they've done a trial and, and it's been disproven, or it means that no, no studies have ever been done or there's very little evidence. Put that in, um, I guess, English for people that aren't medically trained. Yeah. Maybe just to sort of explain what evidence-based medicine is because from my layperson's understanding, to be able to prove something works or doesn't work, you need to go through a whole range of, as you said, like, uh, you know, randomised control studies, all these sorts of things which take mountains and mountains of time, lots and lots and lots and lots of money. So you may be on to, you may actually have, you may have a situation where a patient is presenting with symptoms or well, what you're saying, you've treated, you've seen 100 patients that have all got a positive outcome, but because you don't have the test to back that up, it's considered by, I guess, traditional medicine as, you know, not strong enough to be able to be used. And that's why I guess there's so many boundaries in place before you can prove something that it sometimes stifles, I guess, efforts of people like yourself in terms of what you're trying to do. No, exactly. I mean, um, I mean just as a very basic principle, any, any progress that's ever been made in, in, in the history of time has often been made because people did push boundaries within the realms of what faith and everything. And uh, if that didn't happen, you'd never progress and you'd just remain in, in like um, remain static. And um, I think to, to explain what you, to, to your listeners what, what I mean by evidence-based medicine, I think you, you've sort of outlined it already. I mean, whenever any kind of treatment is implemented. As, as, as a gold standard treatment, it has to have undergone like rigorous kind of um, studies. Where I guess, expressed simply, you'd have to have got a group of people usually who are undergoing, and, and you sort of test the treatment on them, and then maybe a group of people, people give them something like a placebo or, or something that's not a treatment, it's just something that's not going to do anything, and then maybe sort of um, switch halfway through the trial and then kind of assess the effectiveness of the trial on, on, based on mathematical models and statistics and whether, it, whether, whether the amount of people that that treatment helped was um, significant in terms of mathematical models. So, so that's, exactly, that's really what we're talking about here. And if, you know, if, it, if it's not deemed to be significant uh, mathematically, then I guess it's deemed ineffective. When I uh, finished my consult with you, we were having a chat in the car park about countries like Japan, for example, that seem to be taking a different approach with the way that they approve new drugs where they've got like a 10-year period to prove efficacy as long as they can demonstrate up front that it's not going to cause harm to actually allow some of these new techniques and drugs to actually be trialled um, without having to go through all of the rigorous and expensive process of doing all these, you know, these studies which can take many, many years and, and slow down the rate at which we're progressing in terms of how we develop new drugs and techniques. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I, I, mean, I, I would embrace that. I mean, if that was implemented, you know, if we were to sort of like... Um start thinking about things in, the, in that way, I think we'd probably, in my opinion anyway, I think we'd make a lot more progress a lot, a lot quicker. I mean, obviously, you'd have to monitor the safety of such uh, an approach, but I just think the, the evidence-based paradigm is followed slavishly, and it's the only thing that's considered. It can, it can hold progress back. Yeah, and just to say, I mean, I've actually been wading through paper after paper, currently looking at um, two things, using the chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine against COVID-19. And there's this question of, is it going to protect you if you take it prophylactically or not? And yet, you know, there's not much data out there. And each paper has got its own merits. And it depends on who's funding it and how many, you know, people were in the, in the test. And each paper can be published. But it doesn't mean it's right or, or any better or worse than, than the next paper. It just depends on how it was done. No, I agree. I think that's where, I think I was talking to David about this as well, that we, we need to sort of... Um, really hone our critical thinking skills and our, just our logic and our reason and, and, and look, looking at things in a, 
very logical way rather than a very you know um, very scientific way sometimes i think you need a balance of both you know um you're right i mean you have, to, you have to look at multiple different things who has funded the study is there a financial interest what was the study group what was the study size can you guarantee that the people that can participated in the study were all of similar genetics um and you can go on and on we're all genetically unique i mean where does that leave the evidence-based paradigm is my question to people you know um you know, I think we have to start asking some questions about not 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 included. I don't want to get the impression that I'm not for using evidence. I think it's just that it's taken up the entire, uh, it, it, it's dictating the entire decision making process sometimes. And I think there's room for other things when we're deciding what to do. Yeah, and I'm probably going to say something controversial, so that I'm I'm, I'm okay because I'm not a doctor, so I can probably get away with saying a bit more than you guys can. <laughs> but I mean. You know, it's become increasingly obvious that, you know, when you talk about um, tests and, and studies and, who, and who's funding them, I mean, you know, if you've got, say, you know, a, a dairy organisation um, doing, uh, I guess, funding a test on the link between cancer and, and, say, milk, for example, how much, you know, is there, is there influence there? Are they, are they choosing which study, which information they're publishing? I mean... This is a situation where, you know, you've got these studies which are considered the gold standard in terms of what's, what's appropriate to do or what's best practice, but then you've got to look at, well, who's funding this study? You know, how have they, how have they got this information? Is there a conflict of interest? And it seems like every facet of life is subject to, you know, potential corruption and, you know, people trying to protect their interests. And, I mean, I'm not asking you to comment on that. I don't want you to put, you jeopardise your position or what you think about that, but it's definitely something that people need to be aware of, that you need to go a little bit deeper to sort of get to the truth. No, I agree. That's all I'd ask people to do is just to, to maybe use a, yeah, yeah, as I said, a little bit of critical thinking and just start maybe maybe sort of just challenge their thinking, challenge the challenge the paradigm, and just just um, think a bit more deeply about you know every time that you you see something, we were told something. You know, what's the likelihood that this is correct? Can I do some more research into this? You know, and just go through some logical steps instead of just blindly following something because you were told. I think that's the danger of all of this. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you um, got to the end of your story about the IBS patient or not, but so they've gone to a clinic, you've gone through your uh, history-taking exercise, takes about 90 minutes. Then what happens from there? Okay, at the end of that appointment, depending on what's happened, we'll then discuss the process of testing about what tests may be available. And, and then, so first of all, it would be, are there any sort of very obvious tests that we need to do immediately to rule out anything serious that needs attention? And then we go on to, uh, to talk about other forms of testing that might be specific to their condition. So, for example, that might involve just standard blood testing. It might involve like, mineral analysis like to, to assess their mineral balance. Uh, it might involve digest some of the newer testing available for, um, for digestive health uh, and sort of gut microbiome testing. Um, it might involve like, some of the newer testing available to assess hormonal levels, amongst many other things as well. So you, you kind of get into a discussion about what, the, what someone might want to to, to go on to, to go along with to actually trying to uh, further elaborate on what's going on. Am I right in saying that because these blood tests are quite specialised, some of them that you, you you can't send them to a routine lab that maybe Medicare is using? Do you have to use third party labs? Um, for most of the blood testing, even the ones that I think you're talking about, you, um, they can be done by normal labs, but it's just that they have they, they can't be put through Medicare. If you see what I mean, they're okay. not they're not Medicare rebatable tests. So, okay. but then some of the other testing I was describing, they're, they're done by independent labs either here, sometimes in the United States as well. So, um, yeah, yeah that, 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 that testing can't be done. I guess my only um, question was there, there's a potential risk for those sorts of tests to not be standardised if there isn't an agreed what is normal, what's not normal. No, I, I agree. I mean, obviously... You know, there are labs that are accredited in Australia and labs that are not, and labs overseas that are obviously not accredited in Australia. But I think, um, but what I would say is that those labs are accredited and regularly used in the United States. They don't suddenly become really bad tests because they come overseas. I, I'd mm. ask people to think about those, those things. And there's obviously other things, other, I, I feel other factors governing the, the, um, the accreditation process for those tests. But I agree. I mean, I don't for a minute think that every, all the data that I gather on the testing is always correct, and even that can be wrong as well. And I think that's where you have to go back to putting the whole story. I mean, I, I, look, at, I look at it as sort of like basic testing, which is much much more proven track record, which I rely a lot like, um, on significantly. And then some of the other testing I might run is just get, you know, getting, getting more information, basically, which you put together with someone's history and examination to formulate the whole picture. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying any test is 100%, but... I, I have found that it's given me a lot, um, a lot of helpful information to contextualise their presentation. 
Yeah. Why do you think that there's such pushback to, I guess, have this be like a rebatable type of service? I mean, if you think about it from just purely an economical perspective and just forget about the rights and the wrongs, you've got to think that the government's going to, and private health organisations are going to save a ton of money by catching people with illnesses before they become a victim in in an emergency ward or, you know, having to go through huge expensive surgeries and medications that the government has to subsidise. Wouldn't it be cheaper to circumvent these issues at the beginning from an economic perspective? Yeah, really good question. And and, um, I've struggled with this myself for a long time because it would seem thoroughly logical. What you're saying seems thoroughly logical. But I think the reality is, and and again, I I don't think that there is... the current system has even been, I think, I think it's been sustained on increased amounts of borrowing and taxation, you know, and, and um, there isn't even the money to fund it as it is. And I think the, uh, some of the reason why some of this testing that we, we're, we're talking about may not be um, become available, I, I, and this, again, is controversial, but it, it may be because of the, um, the, the cost of the test. And you know, I, um, I, I think that does govern whether they, you know, as I was saying earlier, a lot, a lot of the uh, decision-making pro- processes that take place as to whether these tests become mainstream is governed by cost and not whether they're the right thing to do or whether it will actually prevent illness in the long term. And I think there's a lot of short-termism that takes place. And a lot of, a lot of uh, people that are in charge of all of this are thinking only in the short term and not about the huge savings that they're going to make in the long term. And I think if the, if the current system uh, continues... It's a ticking time bomb because there's more people. The amount of people over 50 years of age is going to increase uh, more and more. And if they have not looked after their health, just like the people I used to see in the nursing homes, they're all going to end up. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them are going to end up in nursing homes, debilitated, and a, a further burden on the health service, age 70, 80, and 90. And um, that's even further uh, a further burden and, and a further sort of negative for the health service. I, I don't know. At some point, there's going to have to be a tipping point where the people in charge have to make those decisions that, um, about whether they're going to fund preventative care, but we haven't reached that tipping point yet. This, um, this issue of short-term thinking seems to plague almost every facet of, of life. I mean, you look at the way that the roads are built. You know, they'll build a tunnel and they build it two lanes, and then they'll come back five years later and make another two lanes on it. It's like, well, don't you have people who can predict what the increase in traffic flow is going to be like? And you don't need to have a mathematical savant to be able to do those calculations. And it seems like... <laughs> The people that are in charge making these decisions are only thinking about delivering a budget surplus. How do they get re-elected? How much money can they show the economies making in the short term? There's no long-term plan. All they're thinking about is the next two years, the next three years, the next re-election. And this problem seems to permeate through every facet of our society, not just medicine. And I think it's a, it's a massive yeah. issue. I mean, unfortunately, that's why I think it, it's, a, it's a hard road for people to accept. And it goes against everything a lot of people have been taught or believe in. But I think until... We start understanding that the health service has to be divided into separate parts and maybe funded entirely separately. We're not going to get anywhere because at the moment, like um, we're trying to apply a model of, of healthcare that treats tonsillitis to the same to the to the, and, and apply the same model to someone that comes in to see me. And I, I don't think that uh, that's necessarily going to work long term. You know, the, the, the different pr- approaches need to be adopted for different sectors of the health service and different funding models as well. I don't think we've even started to have those kind of discussions yet. I mean, yes, there's a private sector. It's still, you know, funds mainstream sort of healthcare and, you know, it's governed by insurance companies and everything else. So that's another whole other conversation. But it's a real shame. And I think the way that I try and do it every day, just person to person grassroots, is to try and have conversations with them about maybe putting a bit more money aside for their health, prioritizing it, you know, taking personal responsibility so that when they reach and, and trying to look after themselves enough so that when they reach that age, they, they, they cut the umbilical cord with the government-funded health care and they, they, they're not so reliant on it. And I think, to me, that seems to be the only realistic way to defeat this kind of um, short-termism at the moment, unfortunately. Yeah. Phoenix, so, can I ask you... Oh, sorry, David. Um, that's OK. How would a doctor go about training the way you have? So what's the pathway? How long does it take? Um, was it cost even, you know, how would someone pivot towards that? There are, um, there's, no, there's no fixed pathway before, like I said, but I think, um, well, first of all, it starts with the curiosity to kind of change and go out there. But I think you'd have to, there's, there's two or three, well, maybe sort of like I say two or three, maybe five to ten, I guess, integrative organisations throughout Australia, all of whom have these training programmes, which can last anything, I guess, from, a couple of years to longer, depending on how long you take to actually complete it. Because a lot of it's kind of like um, 
ongoing learning where you attend sort of um, modules and everything as well. So it, it can be as long or short as you decide. Um, but yeah. that's generally the process that's there at the moment. Plus, um, plus any other sort of um, you know university training that you wish to uh, proceed with, whether it be you know diplomas or masters or anything else. And as I said, at the moment, there's no universal uh, training pathway. But generally, that's what people do. They'll, they'll either go to one of these integrated medicine associations and, and retrain with them, uh, plus or minus other university education. And am I right in saying that you're kind of you're wearing a couple of different hats. You're, you're kind of almost a biochemist now. You're an immunologist, <laughs> you're a gastroenterologist, and a naturopath, all mixed into one. <laughs> no, I guess, I guess you could say that. I mean, I'm not saying that in a conceited way, and I'm not, I'm not uh, claiming to be a, a specialist in any of those areas. But I guess um, yeah. maybe I'm just taking a deeper look with each individual person before maybe I'd pass them on to someone like that, and I've got a bit more sort of experience maybe with it than, than, than others, you know. So what would people be looking at in terms of um, costs, in terms of coming to see? What should they be expecting to pay? So you've already outlined it's going to take, what, an hour, hour and a half uh, for an initial consult. Um, we've established that there's no rebate. So w- what are people going to be looking at in terms of um, costs and how do they reach out and get in contact with you if they'd like to either refer? We've got a lot of uh, healthcare practitioners that listen to this podcast. So whether they themselves or one of their, their patients or clients want to reach out, just give them an idea of costs and how they get in contact with you. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So um, the first two long consults um, are $450 each uh, with no rebate. And then follow-up appointments thereafter are half an hour, and they cost $150 per half an hour, uh, depending on. And they, and the follow-up appointments can be as close together or as far apart as needed, depending on each individual case. On top of that, you've got the cost of testing. And up front, that usually can cost somewhere but anywhere, anywhere between sort of $700 and $1,500, sometimes up towards 2000 and then, obviously, there's a cost of maybe cost of supplementation ongoing as well, which can amount to anything sort of um, maybe two or three hundred dollars per month, which which can change with time depending on people's progress. Great, thank you very much for that amazing podcast. We were we had some questions here, sort of to go into you know all of the specific indications of why someone might come to see you. But I think we'll hold it up our sleeve for more podcasts, and we can go into yeah. all of the different facets of what you do. If you're okay with that. Yeah, no problem. Um, for anyone listening that goes, wow, that sounds like a lot of money. Um, you know, 450 450 you know, you could be looking at $1,500, you know, 2000 maybe to get all your tests done. And yes, that does sound like a lot of money, but I guess I'd be asking people who are listening to this just to think about how quickly we'd go out and spend, you know, uh, money on an overseas holiday, how much money we'd spend on going out for dinner over a six-month basis. I mean, when you think about the most important thing that we all have, which is the health of our, of our bodies that we're inhabiting... Um, that it's actually nothing in the scheme of how much we waste on clothes, holidays, entertainment, alcohol, all that sort of stuff. It's just keep that in keep that in mind when you when you start having those thoughts about this is expensive. No, I get that. You've just outlined my hardest challenge uh, in my job and uh, how to prioritise your finances towards towards your health. And I think um, it's not my place to tell people how they must spend their money, but. I can indicate to them that like a nursing home when you're 60 or 70 uh, and, and chronic disease uh, costs a lot more, it's going to cost a lot more than $450 or, or a couple of thousand dollars. Like it can be a, a short-term investment. You know, it can seem like a, lot, a small inve- uh, large investment, but the amount of money that it could save you later on is, is astronomical. But I think, I, think, I think the trouble is people um, need to sort of uh, understand, you know, it, it, it's, not, it's not my place to tell me how to spend their money, but like... Um, as long as they're prepared, you know, if they want to spend the money on holidays, on clothes, and anything they wish to spend, because it's a free society, they cannot then, if something goes wrong, they, they, they must accept the consequences of those decisions. Now, as long as they're educated, as long as I've educated them and, and given them the information, if they choose to go and do that, then I, I believe that they should have to take the consequences of their actions, both personally and maybe even financially too. But um, yeah. you know, it, and people often expect to, have to make those decisions about where they spend their money, not on their health. And then when something goes wrong, they kind of expect other people to pick up that bill as well. And, and that's a big point of talk, a big talking point, a big controversy you can go into another time. But that's, I hope that answers the question. <laughs> yeah, it does. So it's a bit like what's happening now with the whole social distancing thing. If you, if you don't think you're going to have a problem, if you're you know, 20 years old down on Bondi Beach and you think, well, it doesn't matter to me, then that's the attitude a lot of people take with their overall health. They think, well... 
I'm just going to party and do what I like and eat what I like because I can deal with the consequences another time. But unfortunately, you probably see those people who, who have hit that rock and, and realised you can't really probably live your life like that. No, no, you can't. Um, you can't force somebody down that, that path, I think. I try. And I think they, they either never come to that realisation and they suffer the consequences from it later on, or they come to it quite quickly, either because something's happened to them you know, in terms of their health, or they just optimise and they, they, they have that mindset early on, like, like David. So. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. So, so how do people get in contact with you, um, Vinny or Dr. Singh, if people would like to reach out, um, social media, email, whatever you'd like to provide us with for people to sure. get in touch? Yeah, um, so they can have a look at the website, which is www.newwavemedical.com.au. And then, or they, and on that on the website, they'll be able to find a telephone number which they can call to book appointments. At the moment, I'm, I've, I've sort of postponed the online booking system because, uh, while COVID's around, so all, all bookings are by telephone at the moment, and the numbers on the website. I've actually recently um, started an Instagram account, so um, uh, when that's sort of up and running, I'll, I'll pass the details on to you guys. Yeah. And that's New Wave with, a, with one W. It's what, new, new Wave with one W. So www.newwavemedical.com.au and New Wave is with one W. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, Jake and I really appreciate it. Um, you know, we're all adapting to these unprecedented times and doing the best that we can, but Jake and I feel it's our responsibility to, to keep the train moving forward um, and to provide people with information in terms of how they can optimise their health and, you know, avoid getting sick if they can. And, you know, just let's, uh, let's educate and... and uh, help people take that next progressive step forward in looking after their health. No, absolutely. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.